0: The title of our message today is False Accusations and False Teachers. I have a subtitle. They say Paul doesn't teach the gospel. So the interesting thing about Paul is that he had planted churches during his three missionary journeys. And he started in in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, in the region of Galatia. In his second missionary journey, he went a little farther. Then he went over to Europe and down into Greece. And in his third missionary journey, he went up into those places again and then ended all the way back over into Ephesus, where he spent two years there in Ephesus. And everywhere Paul went after his missionary journeys came in false teachers. Do you remember when Paul, he was done with all three journeys. He's on his way to Jerusalem now. People are telling them, you're going to get arrested when you get there. Prophets are telling them, you're going to get arrested when you get there. And Paul stops and meets the elders of Ephesus on the beach. Ephesus is not a, it's not a coastal city. It's in a ways. If you go to Ephesus today, you'll probably take a boat up to the dock and then you'll take a bus back for an hour and something to get to the city of Ephesus. Uh, so they, they, they came and met him on the shore because Paul wanted to see them, but didn't want to take the time to, to go into Ephesus. And Paul cried with them, the elders of Ephesus, cried with them while he was on the shore and said, I know ravenous wolves are going to come in. These these false teachers. And he was heartbroken. He actually cried over the fact that that was going to happen. False teachers, false teaching, men seeking their own way, men having their own desires, men sneaking in with their own plans with what they want to do is going to happen in the church. And we have to understand that. We've got to know it. And part of a pastor's job as a shepherd is to protect the purity of the gospel that people are getting. To not let a a wolf come in and terrorize the sheep. But not only that, to prepare you so that when you hear things out there that are obviously a lie, that you keep yourself from being deceived. When the disciples said to Jesus, When are these things going to be? And what is the sign of their coming going to be? So they're thinking about the end of the age. They're interested in prophecy. And Jesus says to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. The very first thing he says to them as he's getting ready to talk about the end of the world is, You be very careful that you are not deceived. Because deceivers are among us. They're on the radio, they're on TV, they sneak into churches they prey on people. These, these legalists, these agitators weren't going out and starting churches. They were going into churches already established and try to steal their liberty and lay bondage on people. That's what false teachers do. False teachers generally don't go out and start their own churches. They try to convert you. They're trying to convert you from the truth to a lie and convince you that what you are believing is a lie. These churches in Galatia, especially on the first missionary journey that that Paul's writing this letter to, which is early on in his uh, missionary ministry, they were the point of the spear. They were the first churches planted. He goes into Galatia, the region of Galatia, he plants these churches, he appoints elders in each place. But how mature can these elders be? They are filled with the Spirit, they are solid believers, they've prayed and sought these men out, but how solid can they be, how, how experienced can they be, and how easily these wolves come in. And we saw in our study two weeks ago that they actually believed it. And that's what broke Paul's heart. I marvel that you are so sur- soon turning to another gospel, that is not another gospel. You're turning to another good news that's not even a good news. It's bad news. You guys have to do a bunch of works. You guys gotta you know, go out and become Jewish. You gotta keep the law. And Paul was saying, this is, this is bad news. Churches always have to deal with false doctrine. Listen to what Paul said, or take note. If you're taking notes, write this down and, and refer back to it. This is about false teachers in churches. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11:13 through15, "For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing that if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end is according to their works." He says, "Take heed. There's false teachers and false apostles and they they make themselves look good. They look like they they look like teachers. You listen to them and you go, wow, that blesses me. I'm touched by that. And then when they teach something that's wrong, you go, well, I they've touched me. I've been touched by them, so they must be right. Listen, your heart is wicked, is deceitfully wicked. That means that you can hear something. You can be moved by it. It may even be true, but then you can get a fondness for them and even have a loyalty towards a false teacher instead of a loyalty to God. And a name is brought up of a false teacher and you get up and storm out without even even taking time to ask the question, are they teaching false teachings? It's just this emotional loyalty that is so dangerous. Don't make connections because of, of emotion but make connections through the purity of God's word. And when, a, when, a, when an individual is challenged, I make a habit of never attacking the individual. I will attack the teaching. I don't wanna judge, I don't wanna be their judge. I don't wanna say whether they're a believer or not. That's not my goal. My goal is to, to look at the word of God and see if the things that they are teaching are right or wrong. Whether they need to repent, whether they're false teachers, God can deal with that. It's not my place, I'm not in any position of authority to speak against someone in such a way, but I am in a place of authority to speak against false teaching and to evaluate what's being said. And there's nothing wrong with it, nothing. There's nothing wrong with you saying, that sounded good, let me see if it's true. Now, they were the point of the spear, they were young and inexperienced and they accepted false gospel, the false gospel. False teachings always have a hook in them. This is really important to know. You're not going to fall for a false teaching that doesn't have a hook in it. That doesn't sound good to you. Somebody comes up with a false teaching that is just a horrible, awful thing for you to do. You're not going to go, boy, I, I like that. Let's do it. It's always got a hook. There's always something that is appealing to the flesh, that you go, huh, I like that. An example of that, and probably the best example, and i got a friend of mine who says, you never pass up an opportunity to be able to get on the the faith movement, the prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel, and true to my word, I'm not gonna take an opportunity to to miss them because they're an example. The first time I heard of it, I'm in church, I'm 19 years old, We have a special speaker come in and they tell us that God wants us rich because we're the king's kids. Why not? God owns all things. You're his children. You're wealthy, too. God wants you wealthy. If you don't have enough faith, the reason you're not wealthy, the reason you can't pay your bills is because you don't have enough faith. When I first hear this, it's got that hook. God wants me rich. Huh. I'd like to be rich. Yeah. And so I drive home and, you know, we study the Word of God and we memorize it and the Holy Spirit brings it back to us at the appropriate time. So I'm driving home and I'm thinking about this teaching and I'm thinking, something doesn't sound right about it. And then I start thinking about 1 Timothy 6, that it says something in there about people being shipwrecked in their faith because of a love of money. And so I went back and I looked at that passage and it was more radical than I had even thought. I'm thinking the shipwrecked in your faith for the love of money. Right. That's what I'm thinking. But listen to what this passage says. This is first Timothy six, five through 10. This is a false teaching, by the way, that's around today in spades. There are a lot of people that teach the prosperity movement. God wants you rich. God never wants you sick. And if you're sick and you don't have money, then you have a lack of faith. There's a lot more in their teachings that's wrong. But this is the main part of it. And you give to me and I'll give to you. They brag. One of them brags about being a, million, a billionaire. I'm a billionaire. Of course, I'm a billionaire. I'm, I'm, I'm God's kid. And he's probably lying about that anyway. So First uh, Timothy 6, 5 through 10 says this about money and ministry, money and godliness. Useless wranglings of men, corrupt minds, destitute of the truth. That's a pretty strong word. Destitute of the truth. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. These guys are destitute of the truth that suppose that you being more godly is a means for financial gain. He says, for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we will carry nothing out and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. We say, how about how about a house? How about a car? No, food and clothing. What's your closet look like? How content should you be? With these things, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drowned men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You don't even have to have money for it to be the root of all kinds of evil. For, with this, um, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Look back in the beginning. Those who suppose godliness as a means of great gain from such withdraw yourself. If you are going to a prosperity church that is teaching you this, if you're watching this and you're in a prosperity church, if you have a tendency to head towards that movement, then get away from it. With wherever you are, be content with what you have. Another false teaching today, that's a a big false teaching today. We got to be careful for it. and We got to warn people about it. Another false teaching is progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity is right now, a plague on the church. A lot of people, it looks, it looks attractive. It looks compassionate, like it has a lot of compassion. It looks like, well, this is kind of seeking your own heart. It's following your own way. And those uh, evangelicals who, who are down on certain groups of people, LGBTQ or, or whatever, which I don't necessarily agree, with being down on them. Jesus came to seek and save sinners. They don't like that we'll call it sin, but Jesus came to seek and save sinners. Those are the people he came for. Those are who he wants us to love and for him to love and come into the kingdom. But progressive Christianity is this idea that they are progressing. They've moved beyond where we were with with Billy Graham style teaching. And we're now progressing. The problem is that you find this by searching your own heart. You look inwardly. And you find the truth by what's really true. Is that really true? Do you really feel like that's right? Do you really feel like that's true? And so people end up deconstructing their faith. And in deconstructing their faith, they join progressive Christianity. And one pastor said, progressive Christianity is a door out of the church. That's all it is. You are not leaving church to go into another church because progressive Christianity isn't a movement. It's a way to deconstruct your faith. And you can't go by your feelings. There is a way that seems right unto a man, the Bible says, and the end thereof is death. It seems right to you. You go, yeah, that's right. But the end is death. You can't go by your own heart. You've got to go by the truth of the word of God. You got to get the truth of the word of God in your heart. Then your heart can guide you because it's been transformed. You've been given a new heart by him. Then you can go by it, but it's gonna go by what the word of God is. The legalist is around today as well. And it takes a lot of forms. Not only do we have the false gospel of the prosperity movement, the false gospel of, of progressive Christianity, but we have legalist movements. And some legalist movements are so bizarre. You have the Hebrew Israelites, and I don't know if you've heard of them or not, but they deny Paul's writings altogether because he's so, clearly fights against them. They believe that they are Hebrews because of certain things in their lives. And if you ever talk to one, it's very difficult because they turn on you. They're they're full of venom. So when you're trying to have a conversation and talk to them about what they may be believing that's wrong, they'll turn at you with such venom that they'll get from you what, what they want, which is you not talking to them that way, which is you not saying, I don't think what you believe is right. They'll turn on you with such venom. And it's part of the legalist movement today. There's the Sabbatarians, and, and they're very divided. There are some Sabbatharians who will say, we just want to go to church on S- Saturday. And we don't think it's a matter of going to heaven and hell. It's just something we choose to do. And you have that right. You have that freedom in Christ. You can't say you have freedom to go to church on Sunday, but not freedom to go to church on Saturday. Or freedom to go to church on Monday, by the way. I don't want to go to church on Saturday and Sunday. I want to be different. I want to go to church on Monday. That's what I'm going to go. go Fire up one. Get one going. Get a group of people that want to go to church on Monday. You have that freedom. The Bible never says you have to go to church on Sunday. Never says it. Never says you have to go to church on Saturday. The Sabbath was not about that. The Sabbath was about remembering God and not working. Wasn't about going to church. But then there are others who say you have to be, you have to go to church. You have to keep the Sabbath to be saved. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You've got to keep the sixth Sabbath to be saved. But the Ten Commandments were made with Israel. I'm not saying that the principles are wrong. Rest is still important. Remembering God is still important. We're just not under the Sabbath law. That was for Israel. And I'm not going to go all into that now because I've done that many times and I'm not going to do it right now. If you want to see that, we've got short videos on freedom from the Sabbath and long videos on freedom from the Sabbath. You can look up both of those. Um, uh, The Legalist Today, not only are there Sabbatarians who are legalists, there are people who are legalists about baptism. You've got to be baptized to be saved. You've got to do certain works to be saved. You've got to keep the dietary restrictions in the Bible to be saved. They're all around us. They're still around. The fact that these were the, this was the first false doctrine that was taught to the church and the fact that it is still around today tells us that we need every passage that refutes it. We need the rest of the book of Galatians because it refutes it. The Bible tells us clearly in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, That we are saved by grace, faith. We are saved by grace. uh, Let me actually read it instead of quoting it. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What's the hook in the legalist? What what, what What does he draw you with? It's pride. That's the hook. It appeals to our flesh. Yes, I... I've made a way to salvation. I've done this. And I've earned my, I've done it. I, I deserve it. You guys think it's all by faith and grace? Well, I deserve it because I've learned. You got to be a part of this church. You got to go to Sabbath. You got to keep the law, the, these laws, the laws I say. It's all pride. And I've shared with you before you can't be prideful about grace. It's impossible. Just try it. Try to be prou- proud that God gave you grace, it's undeserved favor. So the first thing you start off with being saved by grace is it's undeserved. (laughs) That takes away all pride. Their hook is pride. Don't let the legalist put his hook in you. Something that makes you feel like, I want that. That sounds good. Yeah, you know, you should have to do something to be saved. It shouldn't just be a free gift. You are fighting against what the word of God says. Now, they've been attacking Paul as an apostle. And they've been attacking his gospel. It's not really true that you are saved by faith. You've got to have works to be saved. And Paul deals with his apostleship in the first chapter. And he's going to deal with their doctrines in the chapters that are going to follow. But they also have attacked him and how he got the gospel. In other words, these are the legalists of his day saying, Paul, you don't have authority. The gospel you preach is not the gospel. That's why my subtitle is, They Say Paul Doesn't Teach the Gospel. You got this from somewhere else. You don't preach the same thing that James and John and Peter, Cephas, teach in Jerusalem. You're teaching something different. The first people to get saved were Jewish, but not necessarily ethnically Jewish. You could convert and become Jewish no matter what. You, ethics, no matter, what, no matter what you are, you could become Jewish. And there were a lot of them that had done that. And when Peter is preaching, do you remember when that, the Holy Spirit falls upon him in Acts 2? 3,000 of them are going to get saved. And they, they're there from all of these different countries, probably Jews from the dispersion, but also Gentiles that have converted. And they hear Paul in their own language and they come to Christ. And then Gentiles get saved under Peter. Peter's the first one that the, the, the Gentile Pentecost happens by Peter in Acts chapter 10. Peter starts preaching to him. The Holy Spirit falls upon him. Later on, Peter will say, they had the Spirit. I baptized them. What more was I going to lay upon them? Peter didn't go. Now that you guys have the Spirit, let's get you circumcised. Let's get you the festival laws. Let's make sure you're keeping the Sabbath. He didn't do any of that. He just baptized Gentiles and said, go and serve the Lord. And then when Paul started preaching to Gentiles, the the legalists, the Pharisees from Jerusalem got so upset, they started chasing down Paul. Now, here's the crazy thing. Paul, because of his background, is more fitting to be ministering to Jewish people. He's a Pharisee a Pharisee. He's excelled in being a Pharisee. In other words, his dad was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. He became a Pharisee by some, somewhere around 25 years old, which is a fast track for being a Pharisee. Under Gamaliel. Remember that it said that they threw the the cloaks of those who were watching Stephen, the first martyr, be stoned at the feet of a young man. So this is 35, 36, that Stephen, the first martyr, gets killed. You can maybe push it back to 34 if you want to. But Paul was born in about 5 AD. So you're looking at a guy that's probably not yet 30 or around 30 years old. He's that young. Which, if you're not 30, you don't think it's that young. But when you're my age, it's young. And I'm talking about, I started the church when I was 25, and I had no idea how young I was, by the way, when we started it. So, um, Paul, has, Paul has all of this, these things that he could minister to, to Jewish people, but God sends them to the Gentiles. Isn't that crazy? God does things different than we do them. And God takes this guy who's overqualified to be able to minister to Jewish people and God sends him to the Gentiles. But it's perfect because God knows the main attack is gonna come from Jewish people and Paul's gonna be able to stand up and say, I'm everything they are. I was everything they are. And I've let everything go that I was. And they want you to be like them, but I was like them. And now I'm like you. It was a perfect fit. God was doing so much more than what we ever thought. So Paul now defends his gospel. If you remember, he's kind of giving his testimony in this part. He talks about going, when he, he gets to the he gets saved on the Damascus road. He's blinded by Jesus. Jesus says, I've got many things for you to suffer for me. He goes into Damascus. Annas prays for him. The scales fall from his eyes. He goes into Arabia for three years, seeks God, knows the word of God. Because Jesus said to him on the Damascus road, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And a goad was a sharp stick you would put or or a, a a sharp metal object you would put behind the hamstrings of an animal pulling a cart or a plow. And if they got uppity, they would kick against the goads. And he says, Paul or Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. I think that Paul was making connections already that Jesus was the Messiah before the conversion on the Damascus road. And he was kicking against it. He was fighting against it because he knew the Old Testament so well. He was seeing Jesus in Daniel 7 and Isaiah 53 and Psalms 22. He was seeing all of these passages speak of Christ, but he was kicking against it. And so he goes into Arabia and he seeks through the Old Testament and praying. And now as a chosen apostle by Christ, but not yet knowing it. And he comes up with the gospel through the Old Testament And we before have done a study called the gospel in the Old Testament, where we build the entire gospel from the Old Testament. You don't have to have the New Testament to build the gospel. You can build it from the Old Testament. Paul did that. Paul comes back to Damascus, debates the leaders that are there. They want to kill him. He's so good at debating the scribes and Pharisees, the Sadducees that are in Jerusalem, that are in Damascus, that they hire people at the gates to kill him. They find out about his plan. They let him down through the gates in a basket, and he escapes. He goes to Jerusalem, and they won't, the disciples, the apostles won't see him. They're like, you, you've murdered the church. You are the main per, um, persecutor of the church. You've done nothing but, but attack us, and you voted to kill people, and you were there wholeheartedly agreeing with Stephen's death, and now you're a believer? But Barnabas took him by the hand and brought him to Peter, and he spent 15 days with Peter. And he met James, the brother of Jesus, the half brother of Jesus. And then he left and he went back to to, um, Tarsus, where he was from. And he preached the gospel there. It was silent, quiet, humble work. There's never anything wrong with quiet, silent, humble work. Just going back to the region he was from and pouring out to people there. And the people in Judea didn't know his name. I mean, didn't know his face, but they only heard the one that was against us is now preaching for us and they glorified God. So the ones in Judea began during a a 10 year hiatus of God sending him out to do this quiet work when he's got so many things for Paul to do. He's going to write almost half of the New Testament and God has him doing quiet work in, in Tarsus for eight, nine years. So then he returns and when he returns, Barnabas finds him, takes him back to Antioch and Barnabas and and Paul, pastor together in Antioch, they're first called Christians there and they're having some pushback on the gospel. So Paul wants to go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles who wouldn't meet with them years before because he wants to see whether or not what he's teaching is what they're teaching. So he writes about that event. This happened long before he wrote to the Galatians. And he writes about it. So we pick it up in verse one. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me. You can read about this at the end of Acts chapter 13. This is not the council in Acts 15. That was a different event. One brother came up teaching legalism. And Paul went back with Barnabas and, uh, and, and they went back and, and, and battled it out with the disciples on whether or not Gentiles had to keep the law. And so he goes now with Titus and he says, And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. So he goes by revelation, meaning God revealed to me that I had to go to Jerusalem and talk to them. And I communicated to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. He told them, This is what I preach. We're going to get it clearly in Galatians. You can find it clearly in Romans, in Thessalonica, in, um, in, in the letters to the Thessalonians, uh, so many other letters, 1 uh, Corinthians. The gospel's clear. He tells it to the disciples. He tells it to the disciples who were with Jesus, because Paul had only been with Jesus on the Damascus road. And he says, But privately. He didn't tell them openly. He didn't go preach it openly and then say to them, What do you think? He went to them and told them privately of those who were of reputation. He's talking about Peter, James the brother of Jesus, maybe John, some of the other disciples. I told them the of reputation, lest by any means I might run or have run in vain. Paul realizes if the gospel I teach is different than the gospel of Peter, James, and John, then mine's wrong. I've run in vain. So I got together with them privately and i presented the gospel to him knowing wanting to know if i was running in vain if i was doing it wrong and it says yet not even titus who was with me being a greek was compelled to be circumcised his point here is titus went with me he was greek and he they didn't compel him to be circumcised here he is a christian he's ministering with me and they don't compel him to be circumcised he says and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. See how it works? They come in by stealth. They don't come in and say, I'm teaching something different than what you guys have heard. You'd say, okay, go away. Go away. Just, just don't go away mad, just go away, right? Right? They come in spying, they come in secretly, they come in behind the scenes. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not telling anybody anything, when indeed they are. And they're spying out our liberty, that's what he says. This is, this is the battle against legalism. You have freedom in Christ and they wanna take it from you. Why do they wanna take it from you? It feels good for them to be able to put you under the same bondage they're under because it's, it's a pride issue for them. He goes on to say, then to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. And I like that. Paul says we, to these guys that came in and secretly and spied us out and tried to take our liberty and steal our bondage, we didn't, yet for one hour at all, even begin to submit to them, not for one hour. And I hope that's you. I hope that when you hear a false doctrine, when somebody comes in, that secretly and to spy out and present you with something's different than what you've already heard, that you don't give them submission, not even for an hour. Unfortunately, the Galatians had, they'd fallen for the hook. He went on to say then, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He says to the Galatians now, I went, I did this that I might know, but they were among us, they were like spies and we didn't give in to them not for one hour, they had. Then he says in verse six, but those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows no, um, God shows personal favoritism to no man. Now at this point, Paul's upset again. It's like he calmed down a little bit after chapter one. And now as he's writing about these people coming in and spying, he gets fired up again. And he says of Peter, James and John, they are of reputation They are supposedly pillars. Whether or not they are, I don't know. God doesn't show favoritism to anyone. We're going to find out next time why he's so upset with with Peter. Why he would say that about Peter. You might think, why would he say that? Why would Paul ever say that about Peter? Well, you're going to find out. There was an event that Paul had to stand up to Peter in the face. He says, I I stood up to him. I've looked him face to face and told him he was wrong. And so he says, so that's why he's got this tone. Verse six. But from those who seem to be something, whether they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no one. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. He's saying, these guys didn't add anything. They didn't take anything away from him. But they didn't add anything either. That's an important point. They didn't say, well, your gospel is true, except you need to add this. He came and he presented it to them and they didn't add anything. And then he says, but on the contrary, When they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised. Those are Jewish. Also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. So now we see Paul's calling clearer. He goes to Jews when he goes into a town and he shares with them. But he came to the Gentiles. That's who he came for, that's who he sent out to. That's his calling by God. And when James, Cephas, which is another name for Peter, James is the brother of Christ, who's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. These are all, they all still carry, this is before the destruction of the temple. This is somewhere around 40. Well, Paul's somewhere around 42, 43. It's somewhere around 45, 47, when this all happens. So the temple's still there. It won't be destroyed for another 20 years. So they're kind of still going on looking very Jewish in Jerusalem. But Paul's coming in with Gentiles saying they don't got to look Jewish. And they're saying to him, you're right. And then he says, uh, verse eight. Well, let's go back to verse seven. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel. Well, yeah, let's go to. So Peter is to the, the circumcised and Paul's to the Gentiles. Verse eight, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the gospel. Now, verse nine, new verse. And when James, Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So he's saying these guys are lying when they're telling you that we are teaching a different gospel than them. I told them the gospel privately, I wanted to see if I'd run in vain. They didn't add anything to it. They gave us the right hand of fellowship when they saw the grace that we teach. So they were in sync with one another. It then goes on to say, um, in verse 10, um, they gave us the right hand of, let me see if I find this here. They gave us the right hand of fellowship yeah, that we should go to the Gentiles and they the circumcise. They desire only that we should remember the poor, the very thing we were eager to do. And I see Paul a little annoyed there. Like they kind of take this position of authority. Okay, you can go back to the Gentiles and you don't have to make them Jewish, but just make sure to remember the poor. And Paul's like, oh, okay. Like we weren't doing that already. Like we weren't eager to do that already. So Paul is saying to them, this issue has been resolved. How do do we refute false doctrine? When we hear false doctrine, what are we supposed to do? And how do we refute it? How do we make sure, as Jesus said, take heed that you are not deceived? Number one, know the true gospel well. Know the wrath of God was on us. And Jesus took the wrath of God to save us, that we did not have to die because sin brings death and we sinned and have death and shedding of blood forgives sins. So he died in our place because the penalty of sin is death. And then he shed his blood so our sins could be forgiven because it takes the sh- life is in the blood and it takes the shedding of blood. So he died for us taking that penalty and he shed his blood for us. Know those things well. Know that you receive it. It is a free gift from God. It's not of any works. Know the truth really well. You've heard the old analogy that when they're training a new banker, they don't train him in all the kinds of counterfeits. They train him in the reality. They make them count real money and then they'll throw in a counterfeit bill. And when they're counting it, they'll feel something different. That doesn't mean we don't learn about Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and, and other false doctrines that we might be around. But it means we've got to know the truth well. We've got to know it. Take time to really know it. Second, study others who defend the faith. There are men that God raised up among us who defend the faith well. When I was a new believer, it was Walter Martin. He wrote a book called The Kingdom of the Cults. And I read it from cover to cover when I was a teenager that covered all the main cults. And what they taught and what was wrong. Learned it. So don't let anybody say, just count the the real money. Don't worry about the false. Learn the false. Walter Martin's book's been revised just here recently. And Ravi Zacharias was part who helped him revise it, which I don't necessarily like that. But there's still a lot of good information from Walter Martin in the revised edition. The revised edition is much easier to read and you'll get a lot out of it. But if you're you're just looking for some people who will help you with what the real gospel is and what false gospels and false teachings are out there, let me give you a few names. There's Sean McDowell. You can find his stuff on YouTube and you can find his stuff on his own webpage. Sean McDowell is the son of Josh McDowell. And he is, he's a professor. He's got a doctorate, incredibly smart. He actually rewrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which is another book I would suggest for you for knowing and understanding the truth. Evidence that demands a verdict. He rewrote it with his dad, taking some of the mistakes that his dad had made out and making sure that they were corrected in the new edition. And he presents it in a very loving way. He has no, you know, him and his dad did it together. They knew that the book needed some work and they did it together. And um, uh, his stuff is really good. He's got a lot of stuff on progressive Christianity, a lot of stuff on Mormonism, a lot of stuff on Jehovah Witnesses, a lot, of stuff, a lot of stuff on soteriology, the way we are saved, which comes into legalism. Legalism falls under soteriology, which is the theology of how we're saved. Also, um, there's a Calvary Chapel pastor out of Southern California named Mike Winger. He's got a, uh, a, YouTube, a, a webpage called Bible Thinker. BibleThinker.com and the search engine is great. You could go in and you could search topics and find the studies but you can also go in and put in a question. Any, just any question you have and it will search all of his videos and it will pull up the video where it's at where he addresses that topic. So if you want to go in and study resurrection this week and you go into their video and you write in resurrection it will bring up all of his videos at the point where he's talking about resurrection. He he was a Calvary Chapel youth pastor, I think, who started diving into issues. He has a lot of videos on Mormonism. He's got a lot of videos on progressive Christianity. He dives into topics. He doesn't teach weekly. He, instead, he takes time to really dive in. Right now, he's doing a study on the egalitarian and complementarian views. That's, do, should women be in ministry? Should women be called pastors? Should they have positions in ministry? And he took months to research it, and now he's putting those studies out. Just, it's very good. You'll find a lot of help about, he's got some great videos on the Hebrew Israelites and some advice on how to handle if you know someone who's a Hebrew, uh, a Hebrew Israelite. Uh, then the third person I want to bring up is Alan Parr. Alan Parr, again, YouTube, he's got a webpage. I, I don't remember the name of his webpage, uh, but he puts together videos. He's got a lot of them on the Seventh-day Adventist which will help you to understand that some of them are much closer to what we believe and some of them are much farther away from what we believe. Uh, He's got a lot of videos, again, on Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, the things that you will be running into, progressive Christianity. Um, If you're interested in battling the greatest and latest false teaching, which is progressive Christianity, then Alyssa Childers has a ton of stuff on it. Alyssa Childers used to be in Zoe Girl and um, she's done an interview with with, uh, Sean McDowell. That was a great interview on progressive Christianity. And you'll learn everything you need to know, especially if you're tempted towards it. Especially if you go, just at least find out what it is. Find out whether or not, before you go down a direction towards progressive Christianity, take some time to find it out. So study others who defend the faith. I just gave you a few names. These are resources I go to. So I gave you a few names that could help you out in your study. Finally. This is gonna seem really, really basic. And I'm sorry to do this to you, all right? But I I think it's a good place to to stop in this study. And that is read your Bible on your own, learn it, memorize it, read it, own the Bible. Don't just own one, but actually own it. When uh, we got saved, I got saved in 74, my wife got saved in 79. Quiet times were a big thing. And it was, to be honest, it helped me in my spiritual growth as a new believer because you had to read your Bible every day for a certain amount of time. You had to spend some time in prayer with God every day. You had to have a quiet time. And the church was really legalistic about it, to be honest. And they got more and more legalistic. As time went on into the 80s, you had to have longer quiet times. How long of a quiet time do you have? And everything started hanging on quiet times. And it, it needed to kind of go away, that whole concept, because it had become so legalistic. Well, I have to have my quiet time for two hours. Well, I get up at three in the morning and have my quiet time. You know, you're, you're sleeping again by 3.30, but you're there having your quiet time. But that doesn't mean the principle's not good. The principle of spending time in the Word of God every day. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a long time. Just, just pick a book and start reading through it and read it every day. You'll be interested in it. You'll have questions, write them down. And then spend time quietly with God. Search out your own heart. See if there's something wrong here. That's what quiet times are for. See if something's wrong. If something's wrong, you're going to be more likely to believe the lie. you are gonna be more likely to accept the hook of the, the false doctrine. So search and be honest. Make things right with God. And spend that time with Him. So that's where I'm going to end it. Read your Bible and pray. <laughs> it seems really basic, I know. But I think it's super important. Stand up with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the richness that we have here today. Thank you that we can see so clearly these false doctrines that are out there and help us that we would know the false doctrines of our day. Let us not just be ignorant where all of a sudden we'll hear a false doctrine and we'll think there's something good about it and we'll begin to believe it. Let us not give submission to a false teaching for even an hour, as Paul would not to the legalists. Thank you for your love and mercy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.